Hello everyone, thank you so much for joining me on another episode of the Right Way Podcast Program. It's I, your host, Samuel Elliott. Today's guest is a former travel writer and journalist turned memoir writer, Rosie Aliff. Rosie Aliff talked to me about her book, her memoir, Far From Home. That's the short title, but the full title is Far From Home, A True Story of Death, loss and a mother's courage, which uh, that extra bit of the title should probably give you a good indication as to what it's about. Basically, uh, Rosie lost her 20-year-old daughter, Mia Aliff. Mia Aliff was a British British citizen that was traveling within Australia that had underwent her necessary 88 days work scheme within fruit picking or working within a rural farm within Australia, which as it turned out, isn't a regulated uh, is a government work scheme, but isn't regulated by the government, as we discussed. A few days into her doing this, uh, completing this 88-day work scheme, she was um, horrifically, tragically killed by someone kind of unknown to her, along with another gentleman that interviewed and trying to save her, her life as well, Mia and Tom. So Rosie's book, Far From Home, is about sort of kind of coming, trying to come to terms with this sort of unimaginable loss not only that, but then her sort of quest uh, into discovering as to, or uncovering the an, an expose into the sort of dark truths about this eighty-eight day work scheme that is a government yeah, as a government scheme, but isn't regulated by the government, and that sort of enables all sort of pernicious and sinister goings on, including debt bondage, uh, withholding of passports, essentially all these kind of, and sexual assault, and obviously in the most extreme cases, such as Rosie and her daughter Mia's uh, murder. But it's kind of the the equivalent of modern day slavery as it came about, but basically Rosie uh, underwent this uh, giant sort of expose, and this ultimately it sort of led to her sort of communicating with the then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, as well as uh, addressing an open letter to Donald Trump after he singled out the tragic um, death or murder of Mia and Tom as uh, as reported as fake news, when in actuality it was uh, he decredited as a, a terrorist act, which it wasn't. Anyway, so there's a lot to uncover. Uh, I just want to give you the heads up now. Trigger warnings about the obviously what's going to be discussed is is incredibly incredibly uh, heartbreaking and traumatic uh, by nature. Rosie was an incredible woman to speak to. Uh, I was tearing up as we as we were talking about it naturally. Um, so yeah, so if if you're, you're in any way triggered by frank discussions about this sort of um, tragedy, this sort of horrific murder. Um, and the, the, the loss of such a young life, then I'm not surprised that anyone would be. I mean, I certainly am. Um, maybe this isn't the best episode for you to listen to, but um, yes, I did want to say it was a, ultimately a very rewarding episode. Uh, Rosie was a lovely person to talk to. I just wish it was under different circumstances. Uh, in relation to that, just a, a little bit of um, information. Uh, there's a couple of times early on when Rosie sort of drops out a little bit, um, but that kind of gets rectified a little bit later, but I just wanted to give you the heads up about that now. But um, yeah, it was a, I was so lucky to speak to, to Rosie about, um, about her memoir. I'm also going to put on the tail end of this episode, I'll talk a little bit more about it, but I'm going to put websites, a few websites that I really like you guys to check out as well. But in the interim, please give a big digital round of applause, welcoming Rosie Aliff discussing her memoir, Far From Home, A True Story of Death, Loss and a Mother's Courage. Rosie Aliff, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you this evening? Uh, I'm actually uh, really, really happy because today, in fact, a couple of hours ago, I just received some quite big news. And that is that Boris Johnson has put the 88 days on the negotiating table as part of a trade deal with Australia. So this is, may or may not be a massive breakthrough campaign-wise. It absolutely is. I didn't know about the trade deal that's going on. I didn't know the 88 deals, uh, the 88 yeah, days scheme was was mentioned, but no, it's, it has been mentioned, has it? It has. It's just, it, uh, as far as I can tell, um, Boris Johnson has asked for uh, the 88 days to be abolished for UK citizens. Um, 
in exchange for the trade deal or a part of the trade deal. Um, and it looks to me from the rhetoric that that's been agreed on already. So that's massive. That, that is, is massive. huge. That is incredibly huge. Wow, that, that is no, no wonder you're in high spirits then. That's, that, that is an incredible advancement towards, you know, even from the last page of your book and what was was there regarding the um, sort of modern slavery uh, law that was that was subsequently introduced or the legislation that was passed. It's already light years ahead of what that was. Yeah, really, it is. Because but, once one country takes that stance, then the others have to start questioning their own involvement and the involvement of their young people. Absolutely, absolutely. That's um wow. That is wow. Okay, that is an incredible start to, to this. So that's that is good news. Let's um we'll we'll get into that in the fullness of time though. I wanted to start off just with the the way in you've the way in which you've written Far From Home. I wanted to first know of the difficulties of trying to capture Mia at at her 20 years of life uh and try and distill that into a book, try and capture her sort of vivacious spirit and uh how difficult that was because obviously it's it's so hard to I'm sure a question that you've probably been posed quite a lot is um, what kind of person was Mia? And I can't imagine a more difficult sort of question because how can you be possibly expected to answer that with any sort of uh, brevity, let alone words? So how did you first, how how'd you go about doing that? Because you did obviously attempt to, to do that by putting it into words. Even now I think about things that I wish I'd put in, you know, I have memories and think, oh, that's such a lovely anecdote. I wish I put that in or... Hmm. I've forgotten that that had happened. How could I not put that in? So, you know, if you spent 20 years of your life with someone and that's the closest anybody will ever be to you, mm. then you're right. Distilling that into even a book is, um, is a monumental task. But I'd rather, have, I'd rather have tried and succeeded partially they're not tried at all. And that it was a way of memorializing it because, you know, they say people die twice, once they die when their heart stops and then they die when people stop talking about them. And we're talking about her now and it's 2021 and she's been dead for nearly five years. And we're still talking about her. I'm still getting these opportunities to tell you who she was. And that's immense for me. Some of the some of my favorite sort of inclusions because because I think that you you managed to do it quite well because it, it is such as the monumental task of trying to include these sort of standout moments in a life to try and kind of encapsulate that person. I did particularly like the in relation to the converting getting in trouble for converting people to Buddhism at one point. <laughs> yeah, um, and I also there was there was one line that was kind of a standout for me. And you talked about, I just thought it was a really great, great way to some sort of Mia's character. And it was talking about if you, if she was, if you moved her in a classroom for, I don't know, mucking around, you were trying to separate her from, from whoever she was mucking around with to go somewhere else to try and call that behavior. It wouldn't work because she would just make another friend. Do you recall yeah. that line there? I do because I had, I was a teacher and I know what, <laughs> I know the Mia's in those classrooms they were the ones you had to watch because you were always trying to control them. And it wasn't just disruptive. I mean, she had a science teacher who's still a close friend of mine who said, Mia just asked questions and questions and questions. She was interested in everything. And good teachers could use Mia as a tool because she was bright and sassy. But at the same time, she was, I know she was disruptive because that was her character and uh i know how hard it was to harness a kid like me yeah <laughs> what about throughout the book and all your experiences there's constantly you're mentioned people constantly compare you to or they say how similar you are not just in looks and uh, appearances but also kind of in attitudes and and sense of humor but um one of the first parts that i, I traced that to as well was this sort of um desire to to travel because obviously it was mostly you two uh and just you two alone for a large portion particularly moving from london to um not derbyshire wherever it was that mia spent yeah, her, yeah. yeah and so i wanted to know because you yourself obviously a very very accomplished traveler you're a travel travel writer as well you wrote the the rough guide to, to turkey and did all this sort of stuff so you're you're 
traveling is definitely well, well known. I wanted to know as well, you mentioned, uh, and I, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to spell the word because I'd mangle if I tried to pronounce it, but it's a Turkish word, uh, U-Y-A-N-I-K. And you said Mia is a U-A-N-I-K traveler. So what is that and, and how is how really that? Wide awake. Right, okay. I use it to mean curious and wide awake. And um, that's something we shared. But I know where Mia got her desire to travel, but when I straight after university, I've got a job, Dad. And he said, oh, great. And I said, it's teaching, Dad. And he said, that's brilliant. And I said, it's in Istanbul. And he said, The connection is unstable. That's okay. That's all right. Okay. Go again. We'll be yeah. saying sorry, Rosie. Yeah. So, yeah, she was, uh, she wanted to know things. She wanted to travel. She did a little bit of traveling with her dad, who was a roadie you mm. know, for bands. Mm. So she went aboard with him and she fell in love with Italy. She just wanted to go and live in Italy from about the age of 14. And, you know, it was just, it was in her blood. She just had this great desire to see the world. Yeah. And I wasn't going to stop her. No, 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 no. Not understandable as to why not. But, I mean, you guys still, when Mia um, ultimately did go travelling, you did kind of keep in communication as, as closely as you sort of could with um, with social media as well. And I, I remember so there, there, was a, there was a brief scare at one point when you hadn't heard from her for a few days. And then that's, yeah. it's, that's purely because she, she had this sort of like last minute opportunity to go uh, on a camel, I think, as it were. There was like a big camel trip in Morocco or something. Yeah. 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 She just, yeah. I, I just went into panic mode. Um, and I think that was the first, that's my dog. Let me just get my dog out. No worries. No worries. Sorry. Um, yeah. Um, I just went into panic mode because she just disappeared. Mm. And she didn't post anything. She didn't say anything. And I think it was at that moment I realised how on edge I was about the whole thing. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, and how I just wanted to come home by that stage, you know, already after just a month or so, a few weeks. Mm. But um, because I was scared for her, I was worried. What, what was originally that, Rosie? Because, I mean, like, you yourself were quite an accomplished traveller. Um, so what, what, what about was I mean, like, it's perfectly natural for, to, to wonder about a, a daughter going away, but was there anything in particular? Was this, this sort of, like, amorphous sort of concern? This, um, a friend said to me um, before she went, she said, you think Mia's beauty, she was obviously c- contrasting her to me, mm. <laughs> you think Mia's great beauty is... A blessing don't you and she said it's it's not you know because mm. women will want to be like her and they can't and men will want to have her and they can't and they'll hate her and on first sight I know girls who met her at school and on first sight they loathed her because of mm. the way she looked and they only came round when they found out who she was and she had this real depth of character and a spiritual side and a loving side and she won people around despite her looks, which is bizarre to say, you know, but I'd never seen it as any kind of disability until she said that. And then when she started traveling, I said, well, it's your magnetic personality that will attract people. And you need to be with people all the time. You need to work on your friendships as you travel and keep friends around you, mm. which she did. But there was always that danger that someone take against it and that is exactly what happened you know Mm. that's how she died Mm. yeah I mean when she did ultimately get to Australia I mean there was a period where she was staying in surfers I think and then there was a place that she started working at which I don't know if that's still around it sounds like a dated sort of concept I remember you mentioned later on going to it and kind of surprised by the clientele that were going there which was just kind of like young teens looking to party and the kind of uh dated sort of outfits in which they were making um the girls wear but I mean at at that time so so that that in itself was obviously that there was concerns you held for that um even though you were in probably much more constant communication with her there I'll Um, tell you something about that yes 
they were, I didn't put this in the book, but they were basically um, sort of selling the girls on social media. They were, Mia's Facebook page wasn't locked down properly and neither were some of the other girls. And they were going on their Facebook pages and it almost sounded as if they were renting the girls out. And I contacted the British consulate at that point to say, I think my daughter's been prostituted. It was that serious what mm. I was seeing on Facebook. So the next day I had a conversation after seeing that and being horrified along with her, her entire friendship base, being horrified at what we were seeing. I phoned, the, I spoke to the consulate, but then the next day I spoke to Mia on the phone and she said, for goodness sake, mum, it's just a gimmick to sell the mm. nightclub. It's just a perfectly normal nightclub. And we're in competition with one up the road, which is doing the same thing, but their girls wear underwear. Mm. And, you know, and she said, I'm just a glorified waitress. And she said, um, she said, I feel safer in this. This is when I really started to listen. She said, I feel safer here than I did in that club, in that night, night in that bar I used to work in, in Matlock. Because if I make a complaint about a customer, if one of them should touch me, I make a complaint, they get chucked out. They're not allowed to touch us. And that was not the case in Matlock. You know, I put up with all sorts of stuff. And eventually she took a soda siphon and turned it on. She got sacked because she took a soda siphon and she turned it on a customer because they bad-mouthed her. Uh, that's me for you. So she could defend it. She could look after herself. But there's no way that that bar was anything like as seedy as they made it out. And I, when I went to visit it, they didn't know I was going. Mm. And honestly, it was like it really was like a sixth form disco. It, you get more sex on Nottingham High Street on a, a, a midnight than you would in that bar it was just kids you know in shorts and t-shirts or in dad dancing as far as I was concerned they didn't even look cool uh it just was nothing really it wasn't what I expected and I met the guy Mia's boss who's now a, a you know social media friend mm. and he was just the nicest guy he said me it was hard to handle but she was really good at what she did and people would ask for her to wait at their tables because she was so funny and she used to dance all the time and I thought well that really rings true and it just totally allayed my fears about that place you know Mia was not promiscuous she had a lot of self-respect and she could pick and choose and she did exactly that you know she had boyfriends but they were long-standing boyfriends and she respected herself and that's as much as I can say you know <clears throat> I mean fair enough though you're on the other side of the of the world trying to you know Absolutely. going going by what you're seeing on social media so it's not like Absolutely. it was complete delusion or was you know not well-placed sort of um apprehension towards it so I totally get that so you, which can was... the, you can see the connection and the fact that I was following her so closely across mm. the world you can see how dear she was to me you know of course and Absolutely. what i love that shines throughout rosie that, that, that shines throughout um when she first mentioned about this this 88 days um sort of work scheme i think that you mentioned early on that you weren't uh, all together uh you didn't exactly have negative feelings or you weren't all too apprehensive oh. about it at the beginning because you understood that it was through the government so Tell me a little bit about that because because that, that's perfectly understandable. But I wanted to hear from from you a little bit about as to to why there wasn't too much concern about that just yet. I thought it was a good idea. I mean, our farms aren't dangerous places, particularly mm. because, especially not any farm that, that would be allowed to be part of a scheme like that. I'm not sort of bigging up our government, but we have a systems in place to prevent abuse on our farms. And I'm not saying it's never happened because mm. there were these muscle pickers up in Morecambe Bay who died terrible deaths um, 20 odd years ago. And since then we've built up this support network for our migrant workers. You haven't done that. And mm. the trouble is you haven't really had a muscle pickers of Morecambe Bay incident to highlight what's going on. So that's been my job to make the links between all the little incidents that have occurred across the country. But I, I had no idea. I imagined her, you know, in some rural idyll um, being on a government scheme, which was monitored and with sort of government officials checking 
being on the employers i didn't think there would be criminals involved with this scheme because it's mm -hmm. a government scheme it just doesn't make sense and from what i now know about australia it's even more bizarre because you're you're so um what's the word um aware of your health and safety issues you're so compliant with health health and safety work uh, laws and you've got systems in place that you wouldn't even dream of in half the countries in the world. Like I got onto a ferry boat to go across a stretch of water that looked like a river. And I was made to put on a, a life belt, you know, and given a bloody talk about a life belt, how dangerous this stretch of water was. I probably could have swum across that stretch of water. It's just, it's extraordinary how compliant everybody is and how aware you are of these issues. And yet, it's such a different matter when it comes to your migrant workers. They're just, and you know, because you won't work in your own fields. You know what's happening. Australians know what's happening. It's true, it's, it's true. It's, it's, it's very true, it's still an ongoing issue that I kind of want to still delve into a little bit there. I wanted to jump a little forward. For, so, so obviously there was still, you still in communication with me there and there was alarm, alarm bells started to ring, I think when she mentioned about uh, that there was no sort of induction training or anything like that and these uh there was snake plenty of snakes and other sort of uh potentially lethal wildlife that was around as well as operating some pretty dangerous machinery and some pretty punishing conditions as is uh sort of a rural australian climate so is that for you um rosie again when you started to to think that maybe it wasn't all um exactly what you kind of outlined there with the idyllic sort of setting previously before have you got children i did not I did not have children. If you are the only parent of an only child, there's an umbilical link still, mm. always. I could tell there was something in Mia's voice. There was something that panicked me mm. because I missed a call from her and I was on a knife edge after that. And I spoke to her the morning she died and she told me that someone, there was someone out there who could rescue her. And, you know, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why she was frightened, but I knew she was frightened. I could tell, you know, because that, that link never goes away. She wasn't going to tell me because that's not how Mia operated, because what could I do? I was thousands of miles away. That's the dog. There was nothing I could do, you know. There was nothing I could do, and she knew that. And she would not have deliberately wound me up, but I could tell there was something wrong. She knew, she knew he was dangerous. She asked to move rooms and she wasn't allowed to. I totally, I totally know that happened. What, um, can you talk a little bit, Rosie, about when you first learnt the news and it's how you opened with the beginning of the, the memoirs, these two sort of, um, um, constables coming to your house to inform you of the situation you could see it on their face that they were devastated that they had to yeah talk a little bit about because you mentioned earlier on that uh, some of your feelings were you felt I think you mentioned I'm paraphrasing a bit but it was something like feeling bad for not feeling more or seemingly not not reacting more can you talk a little bit it about bizarre, actually it was as if I was watching a film it was as if I was uh watching a movie it didn't mm. it wasn't registering and I think that's Denial, I think you go into denial. I think some people go into denial and some people don't. My mother-in-law, who's actually in the house now, she lost her, her eldest son. She fell to the ground when she got the news. She passed out. Whereas I just sat there as if I'd been told that, you know, I'd left the milk bottle on the step or something and that the milk had gone off. It was that sort of reaction. It was the most bizarre thing. But since then, I've learned that that is a coping mechanism. And they've studied groups of people who've all gone through the same loss, say a big plane crash, disaster of that kind. They've watched how different families react. And apparently it's the ones who go into denial for a few weeks or months who cope best. I don't know. So it's your brain coping, but also, I don't know if I actually believed it for for quite a long time. You know, I think even when I'd seen a body, I don't know if I really accepted it. 
I mean, I knew she was dead. I didn't dispute that she was dead, but it was just, it's just making that connection that you'll never see her again. It's just, it's not something you want to hit you in one go, to be honest. It's, you know, you won't wish it on your worst enemy. That's just like the most banal thing to say, but it is, I can't imagine very many things worse other than your child committing suicide. I mean, that's one step beyond. That is worse. That's worse. And so when you're still reeling from this... Um, you want me to stop that dog from barking? Oh, that's, that's, that's okay, Rosie. I'm interested in what you're saying. Um, yeah. So when, the, so when this all happened, um, the, the, another thing that you had to contend with, aside from obviously processing it in your own sort of uh, perfectly normal way... Oh, God, yeah. So... Um, Rosie, in relation to so just being delivered this news, uh, you were sort of inundated then with the media wanting to know uh, your thoughts, your innermost feelings and all this sort of stuff. There was one point where you mentioned about having to kind of climb over your own fence, back fence to sort of get away. So can you tell me a little bit about how that kind of was obviously detrimental as well to, to your trying to process what's just happened as well? It, well, it was... Um... It was extraordinary and it was the way some of them approached the, um, the, 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 the way they approached me. One journalist in particular said, if you provide us with the pictures you want us to use and the story you want us to use, we'll do it your way. If not, we'll just do it our own way. We'll go through her social media and get the pictures we want. And I, you know, that's at that point, I just closed down because I'm not going to be blackmailed into into cooperating when I, you know, I hadn't slept all night. I hadn't processed anything. I didn't want to talk to the media. I wasn't at that point. And then they started um, hounding my nieces at university. So my brother phoned me and said, you've got to talk to them. And then Stuart talk to them and he was just in pieces. We were just, we weren't in any fit state. And um, that's that's the way they operate. There's not a lot you can do about that. No, but it just it just wouldn't have wouldn't have helped in any way, shape or form. Like you said, Stuart was in pieces about it, having to deliver the the I remember that that bit where he had to deliver the the message that was kind of for, for you as well, just the family sort of statement. So later on you I think it was the brother of Chris Porter was the one that kind of first made it, maybe drew your attention to yeah. that the government scheme uh, wasn't regulated. The work scheme was the wasn't actually regulated. Is that was that correct, or was that the first sort of time that you you discovered much to your horror that the work scheme isn't regulated by the government? No, it was Chris Porter's brother who who flagged it up when he said that um, there were people going to farms that didn't belong to the scheme, were in the wrong postcode and people would do their 88 days. And not only did they not get their 88 days, they didn't get paid for the work. So I thought, oh, that's a scam. And mm. I thought, I wonder how much of that is going on. Because he sort of intimated that there were more serious things going on. But it was only when I got home and started combing social media and asking the stories that I started to realise how bad some of it was and how um, it wasn't regulated. Was that kind of also coinciding of the time? You've mentioned kind of early on when this was all still this whirlwind kind of going on that you wanted your, to turn your grief into something. You wanted to, to use it for yeah, something. Definitely. It, was partly, it was partly that there was so much media attention because I had said, Allah Akbar, when he killed Mia, it attracted a lot of media attention. So I thought, well, while there's media interest, I'll see what I can do to highlight what the issues. And I just decided that at the point that the media attention died away, I would stop because I just wanted to harness that. I just wanted to use that. Plus somebody had raised money for us to go to Australia. And that, so I was left with a pot of money with nothing to do with it. So I thought, well, that could be pay for another trip to Australia where I go out and talk to people about what's happening so that's that was how it started and then it kind of went from there it just it it got harder and harder to get out of it once I was in it yeah I mean I always got the impression throughout 
that that um, you're not not necessarily an intensely private person, but you're just a normal person that you know wouldn't have uh, ever relished a sort of world stage like this, and you were somewhat thrust into it just by the circumstances of this horrific tragedy. Um, I tell you who would have relished the world stage, Mia. That was one way in which we were totally different because she loved the limelight. And she looked the part, didn't she? She would have been great on the world stage. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that was one of the main... I mean, there were huge differences between us. Anything she could do, I couldn't do, and vice versa. The similarities are quite a narrow area, but that was one major difference. She would have loved... I mean, if the press had been outside the door and Mia had been there, she'd have been like, well, who wants to interview me first, boys? You know, that's what... I did think about that. Well, you mentioned... Well, there's one okay. There's one similarity that stands out to me between you two: the traits that uh, that sort of prevail through through both of you two generations. The one um, you mentioned one of the stories of Mia sort of intervening early on. Um, one of her friends was being severely mistreated by two people, and she sort of stepped into that. Um, yeah. I think a physical altercation arose from that, but it wasn't the it wasn't the only time. I think there was another sort of similar situation involving a boy. But from that, what my takeaway from that is is that she uh, had this, this feeling of, of doing the right thing um, regardless of, yeah. of what that could potentially obviously cause within herself. And I kind of get that from you because you, you had yeah. the opportunity to, Rosie, you, 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 I mean, you, you, could have, you could have just gone off the grid and, you know, somehow gotten away from, from the media, but you didn't do that. I mean, you could have done what you were talking about now, which is the striking while the iron was hot to draw attention to it. But Despite all that, you you kind of endeavoured to to try and not only just draw attention to it, but then ultimately you you eventually got to the part where you were kind of you know conducting hearings and getting standing ovations for drawing attention to this, and ultimately prompting. Sorry, I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but yeah, ultimately prompting you know national societal change like that. So, long story short, I was saying I see that I see that in both you there. If I if I could say after I've read your book. I don't think I've had an interview with someone who's actually read the book before. <laughs> I've, had, I've had a lot of interviews, but you're the first one who's actually read it, actually cover to cover. Really? No. Sure. And loads of people have interviewed me and they evidently haven't read the book. Loads of them. I don't mind, but it's mm. quite rare to find a journalist who actually bothers to, mind you, you, this is, are you a, are you a writer? I'm a writer. I'm a writer. I don't. I'm not. A, I don't have my. I don't have a. I don't have a journalist degree. I have a creative writing degree for for the for that's oh, worth. Wow. But um, yeah, Rosie. But like that's that's just I, like there's. I can't like that to me. Like I can't even. I couldn't even imagine not uh, reading it a couple of times and then uh, you know I'd ha- I'd have to read it a couple of times to talk to you. There's no way I couldn't do that. That would just be Definitely. a tremendous. Um, disrespect to you and to Mia to, to do that. So, yeah, no, that didn't even cross my mind. But um, Okay, so tell me, okay. is, it a, is it a good book? It was pretty heart-wrenching. I mean, the subject itself is, it, it, the subject matter is naturally going to be like that. You know, I'm not um, made of stone, but I was tearing up. And for, for that to, to happen, you know, to me, just, just the loss itself, yeah. Um, and what you experience is every, every parent's worst nightmare. There's nothing you can possibly do to remedy to prevent that situation. Everyone's going to want to go and travel uh, as a youth. I've travelled. I've gotten into mischief in, in foreign countries, but there's no way that any parent could put you. All you can do is send out your child and, and you know, by the, by the grace of, by the grace of the powers of the galaxy, depending upon what your faith is or if, if you're, you know, atheist like me then you can just hope that the powers of the galaxy you know take care of them there's nothing else you can do it is it literally is every parent's worst nightmare there's that you know that's not a cliched way of saying that it's just yeah and what you've done with it i mean like in terms of this god-awful sort of horrific tragedy is you've changed a changed the nation i mean like we're, we're still we're still not there and i'm getting into a massive tangent but you know even now what we're just talking about with the the UK Australia deal, the the trade deal, you know, that's that's another that's another huge huge step, ideally in the right direction. But like, I didn't even know this. I didn't even know this stuff. I mean, I'd heard of the case when it happened, but I didn't know about um, how bad it was with fruit picking. I have heard that it was 
bad in terms of like people you know prone to like modern slavery and stuff like that i've certainly heard that sort of thing and i've also heard other sort of cases um of um sexual assault and and all that sort of stuff and you know various mistreatments like that i just didn't know the extent of it it was it was your book that really drew drew my attention to it but um Anyway, I'm getting on a massive tangent, but look, let's let's keep the focus back on you, okay? Yeah, sure. So when you started investigating this sort of stuff, I noticed that another thing uh, within the book is that you 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 were inundated of all these people that started coming to you with all these horror stories of you know what they've kind of been subjected to here. And the main thing yeah. I keep coming back to, or what I felt it was, was this pervasive sort of culture of fear and silence, fear-induced silence, because people just were terrified of speaking out because they, for whatever reason, wherever they're going to get fired, they're not going to be able to get signed off on their 88 days for, yeah. for whatever reason. Is that, tell me a little bit about that, what you started to encounter there of this sort of like culture of, of silence, fear-induced silence with it all. Well, I think it made me realise that unless I, unless I spoke out for these people, this was never going to surface. I mean, it, it even when I met our modern slavery czar, which is, was Kevin Highland back then, he came out to Australia and I said, to, I managed to get an, an, an audience with him. And he, and he said, I'd never heard about this. I didn't know this was happening. And the Australians are saying that actually you're exaggerating and that there's nothing going on and that there's just a few odd cases. And I said, well, yeah, they would, wouldn't they? And then I started giving him statistics and giving him cases and he, st- he started to realize how big it was. And, um, and I thought if I wasn't advocating for these people, these stories would not be getting out because they all think that they're alone and they're the only one who's been abused or it's just one farm where they're being underpaid. They don't recognize the bigger picture because nobody's making those links. I mean, People had made the links in various respects. There were academics who'd made reports on this, but it had never gone any further than that because it's not, it was never in anybody's interest to stop this all happening because the Australian government loved the scheme because it provides them with a workforce. The farmers loved the scheme. Um, and I think Australians believed that it was the only way to get, even if there was issues with it, it was the only way to get affordable food on the table. And mm. I think that's been blown apart now because during COVID, you've employed employed Australians on on award rates, and your food your prices haven't gone up substantially. So you don't actually it's this is the greed of the of the farmers that they're underpaying to this extent, and obviously the criminality involved is personally I think the fault is very squarely in the Australian government's hands. You know they could they are the ones who could do something about that. I still think that the federal government need to to deal with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of it, the list kind of goes on and some of this sort of stuff that, that you're listed here. And I mean, there's, there's so many different cases, but like, you know, Tom Webb story, Chelsea story, all these ones that you've listed. Um, yeah. You know, the, the list just absolutely goes on. Things that I've kind of only half heard of, but, you know, you've, you've heard of directly like confiscations of passports, debt, debt bondage, all that sort of thing, you know. Um, but like once the ball started rolling and I mean, you like naturally you've been inundated with all these people coming to you with these sort of stories. Um, you tended this open letter to Malcolm Turnbull and I wanted you to talk a little bit about that as well. The writing of that and where you were at the, at your stage of, of obviously the, the movement for. By that stage, I'd been contacted by the Gangmasters Labour Abuse Authority. Uh, mm. One particular woman, Mary Gaskin, who's a close friend now, mm. just came to me out of the blue uh, through watching social media. And she'd done her 88 days. She'd done farm work in Australia um, when she was younger. And she, she'd um, been so appalled at the conditions and the pay that she stood up in the field to shout at the farmer to tell him what she thought of him. And her colleagues had stopped her and told her to shut up because she said, they said to her, he will make you walk home and it's 13 miles to the hostel from here. Shut up and we'll pack up. And she packed up and left the next day. So having had that experience, she knew what was going on out there. But when I started giving her stories, she made the connections for me. And she said, 
she said she was the first person to talk to me about modern slavery and i said don't be ridiculous that's 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 going too far this surely it's not modern slavery you know mm. and she said confiscation of passports is an indicator she said debt bondage is an indicator you know and she had that information and she, and she helped me to make those connections with things that she was dealing with in the UK. I mean, we aren't saying that these things don't happen in the UK, but she is part of a squad of people, was at that stage, who went into those situations and had, by the time, you know, I knew Mary, they had a, the power of arrest. So their officers would go into situations and arrest the uh, perpetrators. And another thing she said was that there weren't even laws to protect properly in Australia. For example, you know what the weather's like here. In the fields of Suffolk, you have to have water and toileting facilities for your staff or you'll get a criminal conviction. I think it's a criminal conviction. In Australia, you don't. The farmers do not have to have water in those fields. The kids have to bring their own water and they don't know how much they need. And there are kids dying of, of uh, heat exhaustion. I know the family of a guy who died of heat exhaustion out there. And the farmer got a fine of $100,000. In the UK, that would have been a manslaughter charge. Mm. You don't have manslaughter, I don't think. I think you've got it in one state now but you don't have a manslaughter charge. So not only are these things happening, there are not the laws to protect the young people. There's no, there aren't the systems in place to protect them. So um, yes, so your question was, when I wrote that letter, mm. I, by that stage, I was in touch with Mary Gaskin and I met the chief executive officer of the gang masters, a guy called Paul Broadbent, who just said to me, you do know that, so I said, I, he said, what are your aims? I said, to campaign until the 88 days is reformed or abolished. And he said, you know, this will take you a lifetime, don't you? He said, this is a lifetime's work. And I said, well, we'll see. <laughs> I don't know what, I could see what he meant, but there's no way I'd envisage spending more than, you know, like I said, the time it took for the press to get bored of me. That was all I intended to spend on it, mm. which I thought would be six months. Evidently not. Well, I was never going to chase the press, and I've never chased the press. The mm. book the book was the most I've done to try to, um, to attract press interest, and that's worked. You know, I've had a lot of press work through that, but that was that's it. That, there's a line under... Through the publication of the book, as far as I'm concerned, that's yeah. it now. Tell me, Rosie. So obviously, the, so after the the Malcolm Turnbull open letter, his response, and then there was sort of uh, some some diminishing sort of communication there until it got to the point where no one was really speaking to you. Then after yeah. Donald Donald Trump, president uh, president at the time, Donald Trump specifically mentioned Mayor and Tom's case in a listing of fake news. So it was, he, was, he, was, he was attributing it to being a terrorist act and not reported as such. So tell me about how you, you heard about that and, and how that sort of uh, made you feel and this sort of fueling of Islamophobia and how you'd already taken lengths to try and avoid that previously and now Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah, I, I opened my laptop and the Queensland Courier, I think it was, said to me, uh, sent me an email saying, do you want to comment on what Tr Donald Trump has said about Mia's death? <laughs> you what? You know, it's not something you expect to read in an email mm. when you're just recovering from the worst hangover of your life. So that was the scenario. And I just thought, well, he's wrong, basically. It wasn't a terror attack because the guy wasn't a terrorist and wasn't even a devout Muslim. And the whole point of an Islamic fundamentalist, surely, is that they follow the five tenets of Islam. And the thing is, I've lived in Turkey, so I understand Islam. And I know the difference between Muslims and your everyday, you know, meet in the street, have a glass of wine with them. I know that kind of Muslim, and I know what... The 
the extremists are like, because I taught in the, in the Ilahia faculty, which is the Islamic faculty. We met those young people who were quite extreme in their beliefs and who basically told us back then that Islam was gonna try and take over the world. So we, I knew the difference, you know. So I was kind of one step ahead of, well, not possibly not Donald Trump, because I'm sure he has got Islamic friends, but he's just, I knew the game he was playing. So I just used it as an opportunity to write another open letter to Donald Trump and to tell him what I thought of what he was doing, which was detaining people at airports and refusing to let people from certain states into the country, which I thought was a gross infringement of human rights. So I got, I got my say, you know, which mm. I doubt he ever knew about, but a lot of people, they got a, a fair bit of interest. I mean, I was speaking to news outlets all over the world after that, just that, that day. Wasn't it something like you listed a figure, it was like 1.2 million um, <laughs> reactions or trending or yeah. something like that from that response? Yeah, so and we had, this, we had this little Australian girl staying with us, one of Mia's friends, and I said to her that this, had, this was happening, and she just can't, she just could not comprehend what was going on. She just she wasn't particularly political or open, you know. She just didn't have much of a view of life outside of her world. And I was trying to make her understand that I was on the phone talking to another news outlet. And it was so bizarre. I mean, we we're in Chatsworth, sharing around Chatsworth. And I was talking to some, you know, American news agency about this open letter. It really was. It was surreal. That just one day. And then the next day, you n- nobody's heard of you again, which is, that's great. You see, I can, I'm, I suppose my life has been lived in complete obscurity, which was a, I chose to leave journalism when Mia was little because mm. my life was about her and I'm totally good with obs- obscurity and I'm okay with speaking my mind as well. So that's who I am. I don't have a problem with either. Well, I'm glad you're speaking your mind. I'm so glad you have spoken your mind. I'm so glad you're speaking to me now, but tell me about the, um, doing the the documentary the australian story the two-parter with with that because that in, included at one point i think you went to i wrote the name down of it it's the hills the name of the hostel oh the, home hill yeah the guys or aka whatever Helen's, whatever that is but because at one point yeah you, you you went you visited there and um that I, I, I just that for me like just reading that part was like probably the most um sort of horrific experience i'd imagine particularly because um i think you were you were given more details as to the 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 moments of, yeah. of mia's death and just how horrific that was and i think you then went into yeah. the the toilet where where mia had been so tell me about that rosie because that for me was probably one of the most horrific moments I think I went into um, sort of, I think I was in shock mm. after hearing what they had to say. And they were, so, they, they were so careful in the way they said it, but they knew I wanted to know everything. Mm. They wouldn't let me watch this video footage. And at one point I said, I want to watch it. Oh, God. I, I think I owed her that, you know, and they would not let me watch it. And they were right because I would never have got that out of my mind. No. I, I mean, it's bad enough imagining it but when I heard she was stabbed through the heart and I knew that because I received her death certificate with no warning whatsoever and I sat there with those words in front of me death by stabbing by knife wound to the heart so I knew that but after she received that death wound she ran from where she'd been standing into this place of safety, which was, you know, the toilet at the end of the corridor, which is where she passed with Daniel holding her in his arms. Um, But the fact that she ran made me understand what the police had been trying to tell me. And that was that she would have had so much adrenaline coursing through her body that she wouldn't have been feeling pain. And when they told me that, I thought that's rubbish. I just did not believe it. But when I heard that she'd run, I thought, yeah, she that is probably true. And then I did my research. 
search and that calmed me down because I realized the thought of her dying in physical pain was just horrifying. Mm. Thought of her dying at all is horrifying. Thought of her being stabbed is horrifying. And also the fact that she fought, she fought him. And that made so much sense to me because she, she, there's no way Mia would have been dragged out of her bed without putting up a fight. And, you know, maybe that's why he killed her. Mm. You can't say either way, but she was a fighter. She was a feisty little girl. You could tell that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but ultimately, you, I mean, you went there, you visited the site. I'm glad you didn't watch that footage. I would not want to watch that footage. I, don't, I hope no. that footage has been destroyed. Um, tell me then, because there was, because obviously that had to be one of the lowest points, and I guess it's in, in some way it was it was a milestone. But then there was another scene that wasn't too far after that, which was when Mia's ashes were distributed to travel around the world by some of Mia's yeah. friends. And I want you to talk yeah. a little bit about that because that was one of the more, so obviously given the nature of, of what this story is, there's, there's, there's st- staggeringly, devastatingly low points naturally. And then there's these mm. flickers of kind of splendorous beauty. And this is yeah. one of them. So I want you to tell a l- the listeners a little bit about what that was and, and what happened there. I understand people having an emotional attachment to the physical ashes. I do understand that, but I didn't. To me, mm. they were just ashes. We divided them in half and we gave half to her half-sisters, her dad and her half-sisters. And apparently there was a massive fight over those ashes, which is another story. I didn't, obviously I didn't include that, but that I thought that was hilarious. So what we did was we took those and we bought little vials and we bought little pockets for the vials and they went into the little, the little bags and they went out to her friends and they went to so many people. And, and then the videos started coming in and we put the videos in on social media in a little, their own little place and people could watch them. And I've got a map on the wall up there with some pictures around it, which show some of the places she went to. And they just, they made these commemorative videos and they were just, the sweetest little things they were just and you know it's tough everybody's journey is different but that was the best most beautiful thing that was done to commemorate her more so than the services and it felt like she was carrying on with her travels going to all these different places but more so it felt like those people who were mourning Mia were doing special things in her memory. And they were going to places that some of them might not have gone to otherwise to take those ashes. They were returning to places they knew that she liked or that they thought she would like, you know, and it just became this kind of pilgrimage in, in, pilgrimage is the wrong word, but it became a celebration of Mia, but also a celebration of travel and of love and of life. And, it was just beautiful. It really was. And they still remember those little journeys and those little films they made. And they were quite creative as well. You know, it, it just, it was just a brilliant thing to do. And I, I hope people are inspired by that and other people do the same thing because it meant so much to all of us, to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it was a beautiful thing and it, it was, it was like Mia's ongoing travels around. Um, yeah. A couple of a couple a couple of things that you sort of um, mentioned as well, and it's it's interesting because there's always your journey of what you're in, encountering and what you know that these um, in terms of trying to change like legislation or bring about major reform, but then there's mm. also these reminders that you constantly have and you write down of being reminded of Mia, and you say at one point that there's something and I haven't written down exactly, but it was just. You're talking about how Mia's always with you. It's her voice, her voice is in your head. She's always there. She's always constantly there in some way. She hasn't, she hasn't exactly gone away. And I want you to maybe talk a little bit about that, Rosie, because I feel like that hasn't changed since the since the writing of the book. She is there. And recently I've been communing more with her, if you like, um, over 
the publicity around the book and different people's reactions to it. Um, but it was more intense. It was more intense when, for the first few months after she died. And, you know, I could almost feel her physical presence. And Mia believed in uh, reincarnation. I didn't believe in anything of the sort. She wanted me to go to a Buddhist temple with her and we planned to go, we know made it. So I went after she left. And I started to listen and, I, and I'd and watched something about reincarnation and it was just so convincing. Mia had watched it as well and we both really, really were convinced by it. And I, then, okay, a friend said she, she was training to be a shaman. And she said she was on a shame, she was sent on a shamanistic journey and she met Mia. And Mia said to her that she hadn't been able to move on because I wasn't ready for it. And then she did move on to her wherever on her journey after death. And when my friend said that to me, I realized that Mia, I hadn't had that such a close communal communing with me and that's such a close I hadn't been feeling her as much because I was moving on mm. and I had a day when I just thought no don't go near I'm not ready I'm not ready and then I thought just a minute and then I thought that isn't how you parented Mia mm. You never tried to stop her from doing what she wants to do and from traveling. And now is not the time to stop her from making that journey. Now, this is from a, a I was not even an agnostic, if I'm honest. I was born, died in the wall, atheist, mm. I was brought up in the church, and I abandoned the church at the age of 13. And I didn't bring Mia up, particularly in the church. I sent her to Sunday school and she decided she was a Buddhist. I wasn't a Buddhist. She was a Buddhist. She used to read books on Buddhism. She used to ask friends about Buddhism, but I wasn't. But since she died, this is what I think, that I do think she's on a journey. And that's, I think partly, obviously, I want to believe these things for my own sake. And, you know, I I think other people may have had that feeling post-mortem, you know, after that somebody after they, after they lose somebody, and it, it's partly the grief speaking, but you don't, don't know. I don't know. Mm. I like to think that she's she's out there and she's moving on and maybe she's got a different life now. If I make you cry, I don't think I'm the easiest person to interview from that point of view. <laughs> no, but um, I'm glad that I'm talking to you. So, yeah. We should um, meet. We, we should. should meet. I want to read your book now. We should. Some of your books. Um, Rosie, but like, uh, first of all, um, congratulations as well. Like I like that you included getting married to Stuart Thank you. and the, the honeymoon there with the Thailand where you went and pushed the, the little ship into, yeah, yeah. The, into the water here. Um, I mean, you've achieved so much and then you sort of like, the, there was the standing ovation you got at the address. There was the last hearing that's, you know, subsequently what's then culminated in sort of the modern slavery act or has been legislation that's, that's come around. The last question I was going to end with, and I mean, you kind of began with, which is an even more of a, you know, leaps and bounds since the question, but you mentioned about how legislation is nothing unless it's implemented. And I wanted you to kind of maybe give a bit of an opinion. Do you think that the situation is, getting better in terms of of this so that so that this 
can kind of ensure that it doesn't really ever happen again? Do you think that Australia is doing better? Do you think that this sort of new trade deal and, and that 88 days being mentioned and that is going to continue to, to do that? What do you honestly think? What's and all? What's your opinion? If I'm honest, mm. I think things were as bad as they were when Mu was out there. I mean, really? I think there were some improvements. When I first started campaigning, I was told anecdotally that things were getting better on the ground and that people were more aware of the issues and more aware of what was going on. But since COVID, what I'm, some of the reports in the press now look just so familiar. And I know, you know, I'm uh, in a group of young women who are telling the police, talking to the police about a guy who has serially abused them and is still abusing women on his farm. It's all still going on. And if, Boris Johnson has managed to, to bring our young people out. Good for him. I totally agree with that. But who will replace them? You know, it's that. And until the Australian government face up to what's happening, there will be no improvement. And that's where we're at at the moment. I, I, I don't think I don't think I've made much of a difference, but. If Johnson is using this as a bargaining tool, that is massive because other governments, I can now help backpackers say, Germ I've got friends in Germany um, who we could approach their local MP together and talk about this. You know, there are options now. If somebody as with that sort of stature as Boris Johnson, who, let's face it, he's not someone who's particularly shown a great interest in workers' rights in this country, but he is backing, whether he knows it or not, he's backing the campaign against the 88 days by putting that on the table. So with that in hand, you could make a massive difference. And I can't think that the Taiwanese or the South Koreans or the Chinese would be too impressed to know what's happening to their kids, because believe me, the racism towards their kids is just huge. It's just that that's something that they always mention that the Asians, especially the ones who don't speak English, are treated worse than anybody else. They're treated worse than the Europeans by a long stretch. So, you know, I can only do so much, but I would just love to, to approach some other governments with this fact now, you know, that is what I would ask campaigners to do next. Well, I first of all, I think that you have made a, a big difference. So you mentioned that you, that you don't think you made much of a difference. I think you definitely have, because you definitely draw national attention, international attention to it. Um, so in that regard, absolutely, I think that you made a huge change. And again, like constantly feel like you've been thrust into the to a position that you never wanted in the first place there Rosie but you you've done what you would have done in that situation with such an unimaginable loss and yeah all I can do is the book was was tough reading uh but that's you know vast understatement compared to you know what how unimaginable it is what you live through uh so I can't I can't say that I always enjoyed it, but I enriched for the whole experience of reading it. And I truly hope that's not true. What you're saying about people, like if there's if journalists have not read it when they've interviewed you, because I think everyone should read this book, go out and read it. Cause I think it's, it's still very important. It's still unfortunately very contemporary issues that, um, that are still going on. So I'm hoping that will will maybe prompt that sort of change or we'll probably start to to see that sort of develop again. Thank you. Nice to meet you. E meet you. Hey, it's nice to e meet you too. Thank you. So everyone, that was Rosie Aliff talking to me about her memoir, Far From Home, a true story of death, loss and a mother's courage. Can't thank Rosie enough for coming on the program and talking about these things that are no doubt still trauma traumatic and traumatizing to her and probably always will be. She's an incredible woman. It's made incredible changes within uh, Australia and sort of bringing to account um, this 
really sort of pernicious and as yet unchecked work scheme that's now sort of going undergoing major transformations. It brought me um, joy to my heart to hear that this new UK-Australia trade deal that's going on, uh, that's been one of the talking points, albeit mentioned specifically within the proposed uh, trade deal. So I think that's probably another right step in the right direction. As Rosie also pointed out there towards the latter half of the conversation, then if one nation doesn't, then all the others will start to kind of fall into place as to um, bringing Australia more into account with this sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I think that, um, yeah, Rosie's an incredible woman. It was an absolute joy to speak to her. Just, uh, just wish it was under different circumstances, you know. But um, what I'll also do now is include within the bio slash description of this episode uh, the websites uh, about Rosie and uh, about Mia and Tom's legacy that I really want you to check out as well. Um, but yeah, so th those will be there. Um, can't thank Rosie enough. Um, I, I hope that you found the episode as rewarding as I did, if not um, heartbreaking. Uh, yeah, please stay tuned. There's a lot more episodes coming up of the program there. Stay on the interwebs or social medias to find out what's coming up when. But in the interim, yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode and following the show. And yep, final thank you to Rosie Aliff discussing with me far from home. And I hope you all have a decent day.